I am not my father. You are his son. Here, we need desert power. You belong to your time. I was bred to my destiny. It is this more deep I'm curious about. I am the instrument of his family's demise. They tried to take the life of my son. This place is changing me. You are asking too much of yourself. The surface of this planet is ours. It's time to draw this more deep into the open. I didn't want to create a god. You have no idea. You are desert power, and nothing can stop you. Frank Herbert's Dune, the masterpiece of science fiction. Now the all-new television event. Starts Sunday at 9. It will take more than courage to survive what's coming. Only on Sci-Fi. Welcome back to GC8, Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. Today, we are continuing our exploration of sandworms on film or on TV, as the case may be this time. Right. (laughs) Sorry. That's okay. We're doing the Dune miniseries, better known as Frank Herbert's Dune, which came out in 2000, the year 2000. But before we do that, what have you been up to since the last time we talked, Rosie? You know, uh, we are still making our way through Boardwalk Empire. (laughs) It's one of those shows we put down and pick back up and put down and pick back up because we start watching something else. Steve Buscemi just does not get all the credit he deserves. He's a really great actor, and I love that series so much. If you remember, I mentioned in a previous episode that I was watching F-Boy Island. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And uh, despite this being a pop culture podcast, I actually don't like a lot of mainstream pop culture with the exception (laughs) of movies. Like I really do not like a lot of mainstream popular music or popular TV shows. But recently I've been watching these reality TV shows because I can do other stuff while they're on. They don't require my full attention. They don't require a lot of brain cells to concentrate. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So I finished F-Boy Island and I was really pissed with the way it ended. And I shouldn't have been because these shows, they're kind of like the new version of pro wrestling or those daytime talk shows where like they're very moralizing like Oprah, but Oprah is probably the least worst, you know, Maury, all that stuff. It's like the audience knows who the bad person is and they boo them and they know who the good person is. And, and that's kind of like the way these shows are. And I was really mad at the end of F-Boy Island because spoilers, one of the F-Boys actually wins, but (laughs) they don't want to like have an F-Boy like get away with being an F boy. So they changed the rules so that he won't get the money at the last minute. And I thought that was really crappy. You know, that is the great thing about these shows, in my opinion, is to the extent that reality TV is real, which is very small. It shows people behaving in the ways they actually would in these weird experiments. So I started a new one, the ultimatum. And oh, it's got, I've heard of that. I saw it's, that. It's the number one show right now on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And it's like marry or move on. My partner was watching that the other day. Okay. <laughs> and so, I got sucked into it. <laughs> so 
unlike F Boy Island, they're not like right in their 20s. These are people who are like in their later 20s, early 30s, who are at the stage where they're thinking about getting married because our society apparently says you have to be married if you're that age. Yeah, if you're 25 to 30 years old, you should be marrying off and starting a family, even if you're not ready. Yeah, that's that's the total premise of the show. And there's no alternative lifestyle. Yeah, um, I didn't see any of that represented at all. So it's very much like F-Boy Island in how moralistic it is. (laughs) Unlike F-Boy Island, which has a host named Nikki, who is from Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. This one has a host named Nick, who is from from Cincinnati. Cincinnati. (laughs) Nick Lachey. And so I guess he was in 98 Degrees. Again, not a fan of popular music. Yes, he was in 98 Degrees, just to confirm that is a fact. And of course, his wife. So Nick and Vanessa Lachey host the show. My extent of knowledge of Nick Lachey is that I gave him a giving back award at a film festival one time years ago. (laughs) Like I didn't actually, but this show, it's more like what I wanted to do back when I worked on wife swap and trading spouses. Those were very moralistic shows too. I was like, Mm -hmm. look, if we're going to do this, they should actually have to swap. Like they go to live in the house, but they're usually in like a guest room. I'm like, no, they should have to share the same bedroom and deal with the other person snoring and all that stuff, you know? Right. Well, like if show, you can experience it, experience it. This show actually does that, right? So it's better that way, but it's still incredibly frustrating. Like all these people are, again, just as vacuous and superficial and annoying as the people on f-boy island and mm-hmm. i'm talking about the nice guys too not just the f-boys the the women and the like all of them all the people are bad and like all the people on this are bad too and it just reminds me that the reason they are is because that's what actual mainstream society is like those are like normal people they're not mm-hmm. like crazy people they got for tv purposes this is how people really are which reminds me how much I dislike people and how much I like sitting in the dark watching movies by myself. (laughs) (laughs) I have something funny to tell you about that. I ran into a mutual friend of ours, Eric, Eric with an A. And when I told him that I was doing a podcast with you, he's like, so he's still getting people to watch movies with him after all this time. And I was like, yes. And he made a podcast out of it. And here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Let's let's talk about this film or this mini series. It came out in the year 2000, so a quick background to the year 2000. On January 11th, 2000, Y2K, headlines announced America Online's purchase of Time Warner for 162 billion dollars, making it the largest corporate merger in history. On that same day, 22 years later, the company would release a film adaptation of Dune on Blu-ray and DVD. I think that was the um, David Lynch one. Okay. February 18th, Polygram Filmed Entertainment released their last movie before being bought by Universal. Pitch Black, a sleeper hit laden with Islamic religious themes. It tells the story of a spaceship crash landing on a remote planet. The survivors, led by a Muslim imam and a man called Riddick with glowing blue eyes, 
played by Vin Diesel in his breakout role, have to survive not only the planet's harsh desert conditions, but also attacks by dangerous subterranean creatures. Sounds familiar. In March, <laughs> in March, the PlayStation 2 goes on sale in Japan. It would go on to become the best-selling gaming console in history. Yep. April 1st, the website Rotten Tomatoes is launched. May 26th, science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke, one of the big three we've talked about before, was knighted. June 8th, following the Second Chechen War, Russia takes over Chechnya, and four days later, Putin appoints Muslim cleric Mufti Ahmed Katerov in charge. July 14th, the movie X-Men is released, starring Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. It became the first superhero blockbuster of the new millennium and kicked off a superhero film craze that continues to this day. To this day, and I love that movie. August 3rd, New York City hosts Cow Parade, the largest outdoor public art event in the world, featuring over 450 decorated fiberglass cows, including... Pablo Picasso, <laughs> Lady Cowdiva, Vincent Van Cow, King Tutankhamon, very clever, <laughs> and a sexy waitress cow mooter outside of a Hooters restaurant. Oh. <laughs> According to ABC News, one cow entitled Eat My Fear was banned from the show. The artist said, they told me that I could do anything I liked so long as it wasn't sexually explicit or X-rated. So I built my cow. I had a great time doing it. But City Parks Commissioner Henry J. Stern compared it to the work of Charles Manson. Oh. <laughs> Quote, it took a while for my pupils to dilate. After viewing the cow, Stern told the New Yorker magazine, the first thing I could see was the forks and knives stuck in its butt. Then I saw the back all torn open and the cow's head rammed into its midsection and the blood and entrails and gore. Quote, these cows are meant to be PG, Stern said. Would you want a swastika cow or a KKK cow or a cow performing an obscene <laughs> act? Depends on the, the obscene act, but okay. I, Stern, I see his point. <laughs> Stern suggested that the artist... Director David Lynch should, quote, stick to his day job making movies. The article goes on to say, quote, one must wonder what the cow parade organizers expected when they asked Lynch to contribute. The director did win the Palme d'Or at Cannes for Wild at Heart, but he isn't known for his manners. This is a man who reportedly keeps a dead rat in his refrigerator for inspiration. Really? <laughs> That, sound, that, sounds like, that sounds like folklore. I don't think that's real. Okay, September 16th, Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon takes the People's Choice Award at the 25th Toronto International Film Festival. And rightfully so. October 26th at Shea Stadium, the Yankees defeat the Mets in the 2000 Subway Series, the first World Series matchup between the two New York teams since 1956 which the Yankees also won. 
in November, one of the closest presidential elections in US history was to be determined by the outcome of the vote in the state of Florida. With no decisive victory for either candidate, a statewide recount ensued, putting election officials under scrutiny for a laundry list of irregularities, corruption, incompetence, etc. According to ABC News, quote, a lot of TV pundits called the election recount in Florida a freak show. But Florida is the winter home of many circuses. And also, according to ABC, Gibsonton, Florida, happens to be the retirement home of bearded ladies, human blockheads, and the once internationally renowned, now deceased lobster boy. <laughs> These carnies took particular offense at the election being called a circus. Melvin Burkhart, a 93-year-old human blockhead who made a living hammering six-inch spikes up his nose, said, I wouldn't honor those election officials by calling them blockheads. At least I made an honest living at what I did. <laughs> this was also the season of the dangling Chad. Let's not forget that. Yes. December 3rd through 6th. Frank Herbert's Dune is released on the Sci-Fi Channel and remains their most successful miniseries to this date. Okay. Executive producer Richard Rubenstein, who is known pretty much for being George Romero's producer, he wanted to adapt Dune as a miniseries like he did with Stephen King's The Stand and The Langoliers, both which were well-received. He was quoted in the New York Times saying, there are some books that just can't be squeezed into a two-hour movie. It was a co-production with, of all things, the Hallmark Channel. Hallmark Well, that explains a lot. <laughs> Rubenstein called it science fiction for people who don't ordinarily like science fiction and suggested that, quote, the Dune saga tends to appeal to women in part because it features powerful female characters, unquote. The director... Okay. John Harrison wanted to make a, quote, faithful interpretation, unquote. William Hurt was the first person cast. He told the New York Times, quote, I was a science fiction junkie, and Harrison captured Herbert's prophetic reflection of our own age, where nation states are competing with the new global economy and its corporate elements, unquote. So it aired on December 3rd, 2000 on the Sci-Fi Channel and had doubled their previous viewing record. It was one of the top 10 basic cable miniseries of the past five years. To this day, it ranks in the top three programs the Sci-Fi Channel has ever shown. It came out on DVD in 2001, followed by a director's cut special edition with extra footage and dialogue in 2002. Science fiction fandom and critics generally ranked it better than the 1984 Dune film, but still not without its problems. Its success resulted in the Sci-Fi Channel greenlighting Taken in 2002, Children of Dune in 2003, and Battlestar Galactica in 2003. So it was a major success. It was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Sound Editing, which it didn't I could see win, that. But it did win Emmys for Outstanding Cinematography and Outstanding Special Visual Effects. A lot of that had to do with cinematographer Vittorio Storaro's use of an older technology than green screens called translites. 
Translites are giant photo backdrops that are illuminated from behind to give the illusion of vast exterior spaces. This was hmm. not his first rodeo with Dune. Uh, this was not his second rodeo with Dune. He had been in the running to be the cinematographer for both Jodorowsky's Dune and Ridley Scott's Dune, both of which ended up not happening. So he came into this with a lot of ideas that he had already been thinking about for years before this movie got made. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. It is called The Best Dirt Cake, and I found it on thebigoven.com. But we are going to modify this. Uh, Eric and I talked about this. We're going to modify this because, you know, um, if, if you have kids at home, you may have even made something similar to this for their class parties or whatever, but there's a version that's basically a whole cake in a bowl. Typically, it calls for uh, crushed Oreos, but this time we're going to recommend crushed graham crackers so it looks more like the sands of dune. Maybe even add a little cinnamon to it to, you know, give it that red spicy look. It calls for 18 ounces of Oreos. So let's substitute that with 18 ounces of graham crackers, eight ounces of cream cheese softened, one, one cup of powdered sugar, 3.9 ounces of instant chocolate pudding, and instant chocolate vanilla pudding, three and a half cups of milk, 12 ounces of Cool Whip, eight ounces of gummy worms. And, you know, I mean, there are different versions of gummy worms defend, depending on whether or not you live in a legal state. I'm just saying. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so what you do is in a small bowl, um, combine, combine the, green, the cream cheese, powdered sugar, and set it aside. Combine the pudding mixes and milk, stir it for two minutes, add the cream cheese mixture to the pudding mixture, Fold in the Cool Whip and layer in a trifle bowl, the crushed graham crackers, pudding mixture, ending with gummy worms and I guess graham crackers on top. The person that wrote this recipe originally said that they usually make this the day ahead and, you know, put it in the fridge and because it, it, it enhances the flavors. So, or the spice. Uh, so enjoy. I hope you like it. And uh, you can make that dessert for your next Dune watch party. As much as I like David Lynch, this version I liked better. It was closer to the book. Not everything. Like Paul does not, is not better than Kyle McLaughlin. And Paul looks nothing like the way he's described in the book. He's got light hair and light eyes in this. This matters because of the color of the eyes. That's like a thing because they start out brown and then they turn blue because of his spice consumption. And it's clear that a number of things were inspired or copied from Lynch. The glowing blue eyes, which again, I have a problem with in both versions of Dune that I've seen so far. I haven't seen the 2021 one yet. So coming into this, I only have the Lynch one to compare it to. And so I think that it is a step up. 
But the glowing eyes bother me in both of these things because as I mentioned when we were talking about Lynch's Dune, those eyes were not glowing. Freeman would stand out in the desert like Jawas if they had glowing eyes. You know, at night or in caves, their eyes almost looked solid black. It often talks about their inky darkness. But apparently the special effects people or the director or whatever, someone said that they get that criticism, but that there's no practical way to do it and have them be dark. So well, maybe did, not back then. Back Nowadays, then. I think they could totally pull that off. The way they actually did it in this is the same way they did it in Pitch Black, which came out in the same year. They used contact lenses that were okay. reflective, UV reflective, and then they put a UV filter on the camera. The net effect of this apparently is that they reflect this eerie color at the camera. Anyway, but it's clear that a number of things were inspired or copied from Lynch. Also the deep voice of the Benny Gesserit, like when they're making a command, when they're using the voice, it's like this deep voice. I guess that's the natural idea of what you would do with it, but I don't know, not necessarily. You wouldn't necessarily have to do it that way, but that's what they chose to do. I'm thinking specifically of Paul's original test. The pain box. The, the <laughs> box of pain, whatever it box was. Pain. <laughs> uh, yeah, the transparency of the box like, and the effects on the hand were similar in both of these. Mm -hmm. Effects-wise, while we're on the subject, some effects, like the effects of the shield were way better than mm -hmm. Dune's clunky, like you couldn't see exactly what was going on because they had these big CGI boxy shields. Right. You know? So, but right from the beginning, again, we have like the weird-ass navigators. It may be in a later book because I've only read the first book, but it never says anywhere that I saw in the first book of Dune, that the navigators are weird, distorted creatures. You know, they're human, or they were human before they started taking a whole bunch of spice. But again, there are some weird, strange creatures. I have no re recollection of there being any mention of their description, their physical description in the book Dune. But mm -hmm. like I said, maybe they're from a later book. I'm not the biggest fan of this series. I really tried to get into it, but I kind of had a hard time with it just because they had worked with the Hallmark Channel and I could kind of tell after you mentioned that looking back, I'm like, that's kind of why I didn't like it because it, se it seemed to have that Hallmark Channel feel to it. It was a little more colorful than I was expecting. They built an early romance between Paul and Princess Irulan. In the book, she doesn't even show up until the very end. Right. A lot of the chapters start with her narration or whatever, mm -hmm. they, they start with her, um, with a quote from her writings, like she's talking about this thing that happened in the past, but as a character, she doesn't even show up until like the end of the novel, but I can see them being like, okay, we got to throw in a romance early. Yeah, to keep the uh, miniseries interested, interesting and to keep people coming back to watch the rest of it. I mean, that also to me kind of falls under the category of unnecessary romance putting romance where it doesn't really need to be and it's only something that's used as filler for an already kind of sketchy production but you know I know they got awards I know this is one of their best series but I mean would it would it stand the test today definitely not uh, but back then I could see where it would be just you know the best produced miniseries at that time because they did use a lot of advanced 
special effects technology throughout the thing. But watching it this day and age, you're looking at it like, well, this was the precursor to much better stuff. I noticed that it was more theatric. Paul seemed a lot more broody than the Paul from the 1984 version. He is more broody in the book. So is he? Okay. So they reflected, you know, he's an angsty teenager. One thing that both of these movies, both the 84 movie and this miniseries did is they cast a much older Paul. And we had this discussion when I was telling Johanna that I would choose Finn Wolfhart from Stranger Things to be Paul. And she's like, isn't he a little young? And I'm like, well, he was 15 at the start of the book. You know, it's just oh, these yeah. movies that made him much older. And the reason that they made him older in this miniseries, apparently they claimed they would have like a larger pool of potential actors to choose from if they made him an adult. Okay. Yeah, I don't think so, but okay. Well, there are there are a bunch of rules governing how many hours minors can work. Okay. On. So my guess is that they're like, we need someone who's at least 18 or else we have to like, you know, because they're already making this mini series, which is going to be hours and hours and hours and hours. You know, if they didn't have Paul, you know, they're like, oh, Paul's hit his, you know, maximum hours for the week. I mean, um, if they were going to be using light haired people, they should have just used the whole Macaulay, fan, the, the whole Calkin family. Use like the younger brother for when he was younger and then like one of the older brothers as he gets older and they all play Paul. <laughs> well, they used unknowns, which I kind of liked. Mm -hmm. Not enough movies do this. I think someone said that the story is the star. It doesn't have stars. William Hurt was the biggest star in this, the only real uh, star in this. And he looked nothing like Leto, but he at least was a fan of the books. And so he kind of kept them honest. There were things that they got wrong, like the Atreides banner is the wrong color. It's red instead of green, which is a big deal because of the symbolism of green and, and growing things on Arrakis. Mm -hmm. I think the Harkonnen banner colors were supposed to be blue, but they're red in this. They're, they're yeah, the red Harkonnens were given red. <laughs> and I have a lot to say about the house Harkonnen. <laughs> we'll get there, but I think red is not the color it was in the book. I think it was blue. And I think the reason that they make the Harkonnens red in all of these is because it's like the villainous Nazi type color, you know? Right. Um, while this doesn't have the talents of Lynch or McLaughlin, on the other hand, in my opinion, it doesn't really waste the talents of its cast and crew either because I felt a lot of people in Lynch's Dune were just wasted. They introduce someone and then we never see him again. It had real people you wanted to see like Patrick Stewart in it and then you never saw him you know right <laughs> and, right yeah um, like, well, where'd he go <laughs> in this Chani is introduced a little earlier which I guess is like and again the Hallmark Channel influence I think like you know let's get the romance angle played up a bit more mm -hmm. um, and some minor things like Paul comes up with the legal graft for the smugglers and things like that the actor that played the Baron really steals the show in this one. Yes, he did. He did a very good job playing that character. And I'm actually glad that they left out all the gross stuff that was in the 1984 version. So there's nothing about that gross stuff that I can remember in the book, but he is like grossly fat. He's mm -hmm. so fat that he needs those suspensors to like, to, to <laughs> levitate him. He needs to be moved around like, 
yeah like i'm over here now wait i'm coming after you here like could you imagine him being like being your parent <laughs> you're trying to get away from because you got in trouble they're yelling at you but he's just like floating after you <laughs> yeah i noticed that particularly with the second episode i thought this is a very conventional adaptation of a teleplay it had a very sort of comfortable old school star trek feel to it mm-hmm. that uh, isn't particularly unique to dune but okay it it was clearly they were trying to follow the story and that was the most important thing. So I got to give them props for that. One thing I wanted to point out about the second episode that I liked is they actually go into why Leto never married Jessica. I don't remember that ever being mentioned in the 1984 film, but they actually explained it in the second uh, episode of the series. And it was for political reasons. Like if she would have buried him, he you know, would have lost his power and ranking. So they stayed unmarried, but together since she was the mother of his child. Yes. So there's a bunch of different reasons for why they didn't get married in the book. And everything in Dune happens for political reasons. People who haven't read the book, who maybe haven't seen this miniseries might not realize that this whole thing is more of a like conflict between houses, such as you get in a bunch of different Shakespeare plays. And it's a lot more like Game of Thrones, which apparently Mm -hmm. was inspired by Dune. Wow. Okay. So if you can see what they did with Game of Thrones, the writer, George R.R. Martin, That's right. Was inspired supposedly by Dune to write Game of Thrones. So it kind of makes sense once you know that. That's what this thing is. If people haven't seen this, it's basically a costume drama, such as you might get on British television about like what, or the Hallmark Channel, about what goes on between these houses. These, Mm -hmm. I remember when Princess Irulan's introduced fairly early the the actress is julie cox she's in this dress with all these real butterflies and according to her they got these butterflies from all over the world and they were cocooned and they had to wait for them all to hatch to shoot the scene and then then they shot the scene and apparently they all like flew into the lights like because they're like you know it's kind of like moss and stuff like that and they all like flew into lights and and died oh my gosh it was horrific (laughs) that's terrible (laughs) all these exotic butterflies like dying left and right anyway oh gosh but uh i did like the big backgrounds some of them were photos and paintings of places like petra the stone and definitely the big Mahdi statue at Site Taber that was inspired by those giant Buddha statues in Bami and Afghanistan. Okay. Uh, which are gone now because the Taliban destroyed them. But whatever, this movie was inspired by them because they actually existed at the time. Yep. And the still suits were based on actual NASCAR cool suits. I thought they looked familiar. Yeah, the (laughs) suits that NASCAR racers have to wear to keep cool. The still suits to me in this look more like something you would wear in the desert than the ones in David Lynch's Dune, which apparently they took full body molds to make. You know, they looked more, this looked more like something you would actually wear. 
I thought the costumes were a lot more colorful and shiny. The Benny Jesuit, their headgear was interesting. The hats of the, not, not the head priest, but her whole team, I guess you could say, kind of looked like a hat Elizabeth Taylor or Joan Collins would have worn on Dynasty. <laughs> well, they called it, this one is sometimes known as the Dune with Hats. Or the one with the hats because with everybody, hats. Were everybody, hats. Wears, everybody wears hats. Yeah. And I don't know. I haven't seen like the modern TV adaptation of Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that, but I got the idea that they were supposed to be like a religious order kind of thing, like kind of like something a nun would wear or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Irulan sends in this Farah to Getty Prime as a spy. I don't remember that part from the book. So that's one part that they changed. And I think that was just to give Irulan more stuff to do, like mm-hmm. to give her more agency. Cause clearly they were going, they were trying to skew a little more toward a female audience than the 84 Dune. The only other thing that was really different from the book that I noticed was Paul completely disappearing in the weirding way. It was never actually described that way in the book, but it was kind of, it is kind of ninja-y, so I could buy that. All the epic science fiction, anything you name that's an epic science fiction story, somehow religion plays into it in a big way, like 2001 A Space Odyssey, Mm -hmm. it's true here of Dune, it's true of the Star Wars saga. Yeah, you find it in Star Trek too. Yeah. it's, It's everywhere, which by the way, sidebar, I think that in a modern day version, if the 2021 version wasn't out, I think one of the perfect actresses to play Mother Gaius Helen Moheim should be Lady Gaga. Oh yeah, that would be kind of cool. She would be a she would do a great job at that. Especially uh, if sh- you've seen her in American Horror Story, you would understand what I'm talking about. I haven't, but I'll take your word for that. I we were going to do you the casting director, but. I didn't want to spring that on you last minute, but okay. So we'll take that as your (laughs) casting endorsement. That's my number one casting endorsement. Lady Gaga as the Reverend Mother. So episode three, to get into that, the assassination attempt on Paul, we get to see the use of the martial arts that are described in the book. So it'd be nice to see a version with more of that. This had some of it. Lynch avoided it entirely because he didn't want Kung Fu on sand dunes, I think he said. (laughs) I noticed that some of the costumes in episode three seem to borrow directly from Jodorowsky's concept sketches. Once again, we have Jodorowsky's influence over all of these adaptations. Again, the the eyes, though, especially in the third one, for some reason, not, not, not only are they too bright, And not only are they too light a blue, but they're almost green sometimes. It's just kind of weird. It's a pet peeve, but it's a really big one because it's sort of important in Dune. So the- It doesn't really look realistic to me. It looks like they just have a filter over their eyes only. Like if they move the wrong way, it won't move with them. Kind of like a Snapchat filter. Uh, When I noticed the guild- Oh my gosh, I was hoping you would bring up the guild. They were like edgelords. (laughs) <laughs> like 
<laughs> that was like my, like, oh my God, these guys are so overly dramatic goth kid. Remind totally. Of- <laughs> yes. With the folded hands and yeah, the yeah, weird yeah, yeah. hats and tipping their heads to the side just to make their hats look even more pointy than they already were. They were like the pointy people. They had their hands in a point. Their hats were in a point. They're always like, I don't know. They were just so weird. They were like, they, they the just weird remind annoying- me of that one kid at the club that was like, so over the top and he had to let you know and everyone know that he was the gothest person there you know yeah he was the gothest person there and he was the gothest person in his suburb (laughs) (laughs) anyway which i'm no one to talk because i came from the suburbs not the city (laughs) and the final knife fight was without shields which I was kind of disappointed. That's kind of the whole point of having a knife fight is, you know, Mm -hmm. that the knives can penetrate the shields. So I was kind of disappointed they didn't use shields in the final knife fight. One thing that this gets right is that Paul is aware that he's unleashing this great suffering, but he does it anyway because he's powerless to stop it. That's Mm -hmm. heavily emphasized in the book and it comes out in this and it didn't come out in dune 1984 at all in the 84 version of dune he's gonna take over and that's that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. overall i'd say the sets were amazing given the budget the budget was minuscule for this the david lynch version cost 45 million dollars in you know 1984 dollars or whatever and this one cost 20 million for a three times as long thing a decade and a half later. So with inflation and everything, we're talking, it had a really small budget. Yeah. Anyway. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes not so much. So what they did on a really small budget is amazing, I thought. However, is it great? No. I watched it once. I will never watch it again. (laughs) Same. It's it's still not the Dune I want to see. David Lynch, tried to make Dune, failed. Then Harrison here tried to make Dune and failed, in my opinion. We will see if Dennis Villeneuve can successfully make Dune in the 2021 version of Dune, but I'm not holding out a lot of hope for it right now. It didn't keep my attention like I was hoping, but I'm glad I saw it because this has been an interesting study of Dune. And it's neat to take to see the different interpretations that have been done and how they're done. Like I said earlier, this version, a lot more colorful, a lot more flashy design with the costumes well produced for that year, for sure. Makes sense that it would cost less because the technology had advanced a lot in 16 years. You could do a lot more with less in 2000 and you could do even more than that now. So it, it was interesting to see the different versions. And, and I will always appreciate the David Lynch weird version of Dune because I love David Lynch and he's just, he's the lovable weirdo to me. I will always love his work. Yeah. The good thing about this, I think, is that it saved the sci-fi channel because without this, we would have never had Battlestar Galactica. We would have, the reboot, we would have never had any of the good things that came after it because sci-fi channel was like barely holding on for a while there. They went all in on this miniseries concept. And then that ended up being the thing that saved the channel. So Dune was their Heather Locklear. 
Dune was their Heather Locklear. And what I mean by this is a lot of sitcoms through a lot of sitcoms were brought back to life because that's right. Bring Heather Locklear onto the cast. Yes. (laughs) One way, shape or form. As as a huge Heather Locklear fan, I should have gotten that reference, but (laughs) yeah, well, that does it for this one. But we have to say, what did you think of the sandworms? I liked them. Did you like them better than the lynch worms? No. I mean, I like how they were able to get on the on the worms and ride and it showed how they could do it. But I still, <laughs> I don't know. I, there's just something to be said about that scene in Dune 84 where you just see a wall of worms going behind Kyle McLaughlin and he's like oh yeah I'm gonna hop on <laughs> he just hops on the worm and he's done you know so it, true. <laughs> true. I don't know I like the 84 worms better but I feel like you got to see more of the worms in the miniseries okay well I'm glad we got to see more worms because when we watched the animated version of Beetlejuice and Starship Troopers we didn't end up seeing any worms so the sandworm Saga continues next time with Dune 2021. See how we think it compares to Lynch's Dune. See how we think it compares to the Sci-Fi Channel Dune. If you want to send us email, you can. It's gcapodcast at gmail.com. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast at gmail.com. Remember, we release every date with an eight. So the eighth, the 18th, and the 28th of every month. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. Signing off. You're so smart. I'm your support person. I'm your hype man. Okay.